Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Machines and Masterpieces, a podcast that is interested in the intersection of culture, technology, and economics. I am Christoph Spires, and I'm an Associate Professor of Finance at HEC Paris. My guest today is Josephine van Herpen, who is a doctoral student in the Economic Law Department at the KU Leuven in Belgium. She just finished writing her dissertation on the contractual dynamics in the digitized music industry, in particular in continental Europe. Before she started her PhD, she was a litigation attorney specialized in intellectual property law. I'm very happy that she's joining me on the podcast today to talk about the economic and legal dimensions of the music streaming business. Hi, Josephine. Hello. So in the PhD that you just submitted, you talk a lot about streaming services and how the revenues coming in that streaming services are split between different parties. And so we can talk a bit about that. Maybe a first question I have is, how much of the money coming in at a streaming service is kept by the streaming service, right? So how much, how much are they keeping for themselves and how much are they paying out? Simply said, most of the digital service providers at this very moment are acting on a, a 30-70 model. So 30%, maybe 35 in some cases, 35, 30% mainly, and 70% is uh, the division with uh, DSPs, so digital service providers keeping 30% and the rest 70% going to the music uh, value chain. And so with digital service providers, you mean Spotify, Apple Music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. These are... SoundCloud, Sunstream, Resonate. So, so this 30-70 split is quite interesting. So how does this compare to analog practices, right? Uh, back in the day when, when music record stores were selling records. So how does that split of 30-70 compare to the old practices when sales were physical? Uh, so interestingly, it was a, it was a very similar split. Uh, so retailers and distributors and uh, physical distributors and so forth, they also kept around around that same proportion of uh, of music revenue in in the physical age. So it's interesting, right? So you would think that, I mean, that there's no physical risk or no physical business, and still, so the streaming services keep the same share of the pie. Now, if you think about about the seventy percent that is paid out to the rights holders or the people behind the music, let's say, of course, we need to decide how to split the pie, right? And so if I understand correctly from your dissertation, how this, the pie is split over songs depends on what is sometimes called track allocation, right? So you're going to allocate the streaming services are allocating money over different tracks. Now, and there's a couple of dimensions that I'd like to talk about here. So first is what, what I find interesting is that you write that so only the tracks that are played for at least 30 seconds count. Am I correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. Do you know where that comes from? So where, why 30 seconds? Well, that's a question I've, I've asked myself a few times over the past uh, few years. From the moment onwards, I found out about this 30-second rule. That means that if you get to the 30 seconds, if you grasp your audience attention for 30 seconds, then you get the revenues. And also then you get the, the benefits from getting a higher place in the in the algorithm at a later stage. But I really, I haven't found uh, the answers to that question. Interestingly, though, I had a conversation uh, with a journalist last week, and he made the connection with uh, radio spots and said that traditionally radio spots take about 30 seconds. So maybe it's like a cognitive thing with people deciding in that time period whether they want to do something or not, whether they want to keep on listening to something or not. If you get to the 30-second mark, it means that 
the chances are high that the person would listen to the end. But this is conjecture, right? But the link with radio spots to me was, was quite interesting. So does this have any effect on the way that musicians and make music or that record companies promote music? Does, that, does this have any effect on the music structure itself? Yes, yes. It, it, it really clearly does have an influence on the music structure itself in several different ways. The most notable one, I think, is mainly that songs are getting shorter. Contemporary pop songs are getting shorter than they were 20 years ago. For example, now we won't have a shine on you crazy diamonds type song getting very high in the charts just because these, these first 30 seconds are, are basically the main thing that counts. And as many 30 second strips of time that you can grasp, the better for your revenues. So that's the first thing. Um, music is getting shorter, but in the structure of the music itself, some things can be noticed as well, primarily with the hook of the song coming earlier in the song, so that the listeners are immediately struck by the essence of the song, like a table of contents, as, as it were, uh, in the beginning of the song. So you, you try to get everything in as quick as possible. And by that, I also mean featured artists or more, more famous artists that get in to, to collaborate on a certain song. They're put in sooner. So in those first 30 seconds, if there's a collaborating artist, like a featured something, they're going to get in the music faster than they would if the 30-second rule did not apply. So with this 30-second rule, we know which songs are which tracks count in a way, right? So which, which tracks will be remunerated somehow. So then you have all the tracks that count, and then you have all the revenues coming in at the streaming service. Then they have to decide how they're going to split the pot of money, right? So how are they going to allocate this over the different uh, songs? And so what I find interesting in your thesis is that you're right, and I didn't notice that the current payment system is so-called pro-rata or market-centric, which means that, if I understand correctly, that sort of all the money is pooled, all the money that comes in at the streaming service is pooled, and then every track gets, let's say, a slice of the pie, depending on its fraction of total listening. Yes, I think, simply put, that is basically how, how I would put so, it. So if, if, let's say, Toxic by Britney Spears counts for 0.1% of all listening, total listening then 0.1% of money would sort of be allocated to that song or would go to the rights holders behind that song. Yes, in principle, yes. That's how the, the market share uh, allocation works, like the consumption share. Consumption. It's the consumption share, right? But it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of, it's interesting. But it's also a bit counterintuitive, right? Because this is not how the music business used to work, right? So in a sense that we're basically pooling the money of everybody, irrespective of whether they consume a lot, whether they listen a lot or not. Yes, yeah. It's not that if I only listen to one song this month, let's say that I only listen to one song this month. Let's say that I only listen to one song by Lana Del Rey. It's not that my... my, toxic, my, my toxic by Britney oh, Spears. Toxic maybe. by Britney Spears. <laughs> it's not that my 10 euros would go to Lana Del Rey or Britney Spears, right? Basically, my one... Consumption would be pulled with everybody else's consumption, and then the split would be done. Yes, that's that's at present how it works for for ninety nine percent of, uh, of of streaming services. There are a few that don't do this anymore, but most of them, yeah, work uh, with the consumption share model. But so, which, which genres or which artists are are benefiting from this, and which genres hurt by this? Right? It's, it's clear that I guess it's clear that uh, users or listeners that that, that don't listen. 
too much on a monthly basis, have different tastes than people that stream a lot on a monthly basis, right? So basically the low-level users are subsidizing the artists listened to by high-level artists. So which genres are benefiting from this system or which kind of artists are benefiting and which artists are hurt through the system? Well, there's there's been a lot of analysis and research on that particular question and it's divided. So some researchers say, okay, this, this consumption share model is basically good for uh, R&B artists and English-speaking big label artists, and it's bad for jazz musicians, niche, niche genres, uh, and so forth. But then on the other hand, there's there's people saying that the economic effects of, of this particular division of revenues are not huge. So it's still, it's still a point of contention. What I do think is that the 30-second rule in particular is, is, is not the most optimal solution for classical music in particular, which, as, as you know, they, they have a much longer compositions than the three-minute mark for a traditional pop hit of, uh, of 2021, for example. If if I want to listen to Mahler too, and I'll be honest, I do sometimes, it's a good symphony, then that's an hour and a half, right? And it's four movements, so that's four times 30 seconds, but that's only four streams in total, while I've been listening to the music for an hour and a half, if not longer. Classical music, in any case, is not really at the winning side of this equation. And interestingly, there's a few streaming services for, for classical music in particular that move away from this 30-second rule in favor of a per-second rule. So then if you listen to Tchaikovsky for an hour, then every second counts. And I think maybe there is something to be said for, for that as well. So stepping back from the track allocation, let, let's go back to the 70% that is in, in total paid to the right holders of music. If I understand correctly, there's there's money that's being paid to the the composers of music typically and to the performers, right? So the composers, let, let's think of the, the the songwriter and the performer is the artist that is performing the or is recording the the music. And so you're right, I think in, in your thesis that typically this, this is 55-15 split more or less, right? So if you take the total 70% paid to write holders, about 55% would go to the to the record company for the performance of recorded music, and about 15% would go to the music publisher to compensate the composition. So this seems like a strange, I mean, at first I thought it was a bit of a strange split in a way, right? So there's man, much more money going to the to reward the performance or the record, let's say, than to perform the songwriter. Is this like a, a split that stems from from history somehow, or, or, or where, where does this idea come from that a composition has less value than a recording? Yeah, so this this does come from, from the analog age. It's a split that's been quite similar for the, the last 70, 80 years or so. And it stems from the fact that in the olden days, in the analog age, that uh, the task of a record company entailed a wide array of, of activities, including not only uh, packaging, manufacturing, distribution, transport, a a vast array of activities that the uh, record company had to undertake, including the costs that this entails, including therefore the risk that it entails. So record companies were seen as the bigger risk takers and thus uh, having a greater right to a greater proportion of revenues. If you can contrast that with the contribution of the publishing side of the equation, then basically they said, well, the only thing you're bringing to the table is the composition. 
we're basically doing all the work to get it commercialized. So we, as a result, deserve a greater part uh, of the pie. If you think about the, the money coming in at a record company from the streaming service, so they, they get money from the streaming service and then part of that they retain and part of that they pay out to artists, let's say. Now, how much of the money coming in from, from the streaming service do they tend to retain? Hmm, that's a, that's a difficult question. But is it like half, less than half, more than half? It depends on the deal that's in place between the musician and their corporate partner. So the, either the music publisher or the record company or both. So it depends greatly. You have loads of different types of contracts in the music industry. And these days, the, the choice in that regard is, is even more huge than it used to be. Either you, you fully transfer your rights, you only grant a license, and in return, you get a flat fee or a lump sum or a royalty payment. And if you get a royalty payment, what percentage do you get? It differs widely from artists that are starting out or established artists. It can range from like 15% or 20% for digital royalties to maybe a 50-50 split. And also, you also have to bring into the equation that a record company or a music publisher, those are traditional entities. But now there is a whole range of artists and label services that entering the market as well. If you're an independent artist, you can go through a digital distributor for your records. You can you can call upon the services of music publishing administrator and you don't really, in theory, need a music publisher or a record company to succeed. So we have to bring all of these different types of deals into the equation as a result. I, we can't, I can't give you a really clear answer to the question just because of the huge, huge array of possibilities that's out there for musicians. But I can say that in many cases still, there are divisions of revenues that to us instinctively would appear weird. So what do you mean with weird? Well, weird in the sense that in the same way that maybe instinctively users of, of digital service providers of streaming services would think that what they listen to is connected with their money. In the same way, I would think that a division of revenues between musicians and their corporate partners would be in favor of the musician, whilst in reality, that is not the case in many, in many situations. Yeah, so if I understand you correctly, so sometimes the split between the record company and the musician is such that, for example, 20% or maybe even only 15% goes to the artist and the rest stays at the record company. But then, of course, in exchange, the artist is getting service from the record company. But, but that, that also means that the artist, at the end of the day, in some cases, probably sees very little money, right? So I've heard some, some stories of people that have a million streams or, or per million streams get maybe like $2,000, $3,000, right? Is that... I think that's a ballpark figure that's close to reality, yes, yes. And from that two or $3,000 per million streams, then sometimes the artist still needs to pay other artists or producers or other parties? If the record was made in the context of a big uh, record company, it's possible that those monies to producers and um, other other songwriters and stuff, uh, other people have already been included into the equation. But in any case, once the artists get the money, they would still have to pay their managers if they have any, and then ultimately uh, yeah, taxes. So it's clear that to make a living out of this, you need millions of streams a year, right? I mean, I, I guess if, if it's two, $3,000 per million streams, I think uh, you need a few million streams a, a month to really survive in this business. 
Definitely, definitely. There's and there's there's a lot of music on Spotify, and I think I've heard, I've read that almost half of it is rarely listened to. So the question is, how many people can can live off their music from Spotify? I would think that the answer is not many. So something else that you have in your thesis, which I think is is really interesting, is you discuss quite a bit the role of major labels, right? Major record companies like Universal, Warner, and so on. And I think you touched upon the the issue that streaming, rather than making the music industry more democratic, appears to have led to what you call a replication of traditional music industry dynamics. I think this is interesting also because uh, we see this in other contexts as well. We always thought, well, technology, the blockchain, uh, you name it, will will make everything more disintermediated and will lead to democratization. And that doesn't seem to be the case in many settings. But can you can you maybe give a few examples of how so if we see this replication of traditional dynamics, why major labels are still so important in this age of music streaming? It's a good question. And I think it's very impressive what the major labels have basically done, where at the end of the uh, 90s, everybody was saying like, okay, the recorded music is, is sector is done for, it's finished, uh, the death of the album, digital piracy and so forth. And things were really looking quite bleak for everybody, including including the, the major labels. At that time, there were still five. Then um, EMI was lost, uh, sadly enough. And then there was a, a concentration wave that ultimately led to the three majors that are still uh, alive between brackets today, namely Sony, Warner, and Universal. So there's only three left. And now at the beginning of this year, I read an article saying like, okay, from this moment onwards, the major labels are earning a million dollars an hour from streaming. And so your question, like, how did this happen? I think is a is a very valid one. And I think there's a lot of uh, strategy and savvy involved. If we compare the music industry, if we compare the major labels from the beginning of the 2000s, where they were still banking on, on, on enforcing copyright versus infringing users, having having big lawsuits every, every single month, out in, in the newspapers, I think they made a switch, a drastic switch at a certain point where they were like, okay, we can't only go the repressive route now. We need to see this as a more positive, positive evolution and try to monetize the positive evolution. So then they started making their own digital download services, so MusicNet and PressPlay, but then that really didn't work. And then they a few years later, they, they went into the, the Apple, the iTunes story. And so then every time something new happened, they were more and more proactive in getting uh, getting all of this to work. And when Spotify hit the market, I think they made the wise decision to, to also get, get some equity in Spotify. And so they really transformed themselves from the, the behemoths of the, of the 20th century that they were to more lean, strategic, digital I don't want to say monstrous because that's a very <laughs> negative word, obviously, but um, they're more strategic. And I think that's what played a very, very big role in them getting back on top, as it were, because we were all thinking at the in the 2000s, okay, the internet is there, intermediaries are gone. Direct-to-fan relationships are going to rule the world. The celestial jukebox, as it was called, held, held a lot of promise, but in reality, we've seen... That's... So what is their competitive advantage, right? So why do we need, I mean, what are they good at? Why, why is it hard to compete with major labels? Is it that they're better at getting 
music on playlists at like Spotify or Apple Music? Are they are they paying for favorable treatment? Is that it? Like how is it even allowed? Can you can can so, okay naive question? Can can Universal or Warner can they pay Spotify to get their music on playlists or to get a f- favorable treatment by algorithms? That is basically what promotion and marketing of songs today on in the Spotify age is. Because this was not allowed on the radio, if I understand correctly, right? Yeah, or... so there, a few decades ago, there was this issue with the music industry paying for radio DJs to have their song played on the radio, as a result of which uh, more airplay was guaranteed, more revenues, more, more audiences, better better audiences on tours, blah, blah, blah. So that was called a payola, and that was rendered illegal. Uh, so you can't pay radio DJs to play your music. And now in the streaming age, basically what promotion is, is that you have to try and get your artists onto a playlist. But that's basically how it, how it works. It's, it's what, the, what the task of the record company now is in 2021. Is you have to get your artists onto a playlist. And in that context, the major labels have a huge advantage because they have so much more catalog, so they can leverage that catalog into beneficial spots on playlists. Is that legal? Yes. Is it completely what we want for things to happen to be fair? I would argue no, because there's having the leverage to get your artists on playlists is one thing, but seeing then that so many other people fall by the wayside because they don't have the money, they don't have the leverage to get their music onto playlists like that. To me, it feels a bit wrong, but I know that that's commercially completely defensible. I don't know how to think about this really, right? I mean, I. I think we, we shouldn't be surprised. And of course, it's it's a form of marketing. Maybe what is a bit different from, let's say, other media is that this is typically not very transparent, right? So if, if I see uh, in the newspaper, uh, if there would be an advertised uh, article or a sponsored article, that it would be mentioned as such, right? Well, if, if you listen to a playlist, you think it's Apple's Apple Music's choice or Spotify's choice. Well, of course, this is being colored by their advertising income yeah yeah in a way it is in a way it is you there is you should make a distinction between the curated playlists and the automated playlists since there's a difference in getting on but so but automated is is done by an algorithm yes and then the question is how the algorithm i mean it all depends on how the algorithm is built no Yeah, yeah yeah definitely and i think the question of transparency that you touched upon is basically the most the most pressing question that's upon us right now like how are these playlists formed? It makes complete commercial sense for the content to be influenced by promotional considerations. But then I feel that I want to know how and why a certain music gets on a certain playlist. Now on the website of Spotify, the about recommendations uh, section of, of, the, of the website says, well, so the constitution of our playlists may be informed by commercial considerations. <sighs> That's a bit abstract and vague, is it not? But at the, in, um, at the European level, things are moving in a certain direction of more transparency. And I would, I would be interested in seeing how those evolutions, like the Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act, how that might impact that question, because there are there are a number of provisions on, on greater transparency, such as in the platform to business regulation as well. More transparency is really a goal of, of the European Union. And I hope that this would have an impact on, on 
playlist constitution as well. I think transparency is a big problem, but not only in the constitution of playlists, but also in the way the money flows throughout the system. And I think that information, having more information, having more transparency throughout the music value chain would definitely be be a beneficial evolution. Maybe related to that issue of transparency, let's turn to musicians, right? So you mentioned in in your thesis that maybe musicians do not have a lot of bargaining power. Maybe they're sort of at the sometimes they end up in unfair situations which we respect to record companies and so but why why do you think that is the case like why, why do you, why do you state that you think that uh artists or musicians have relatively low bargaining power i mean you could argue at the end of the day record companies cannot do with without the music right they cannot do without the musicians so why do you say that musicians have low bargaining power there are several factors that play a role uh in this regard first one is um is an information asymmetry. Basically, if you, as a musician, especially in the beginning of your career, you enter into a contractual relationship with a big corporate partner, they're bound to have more information than you do. They're bound to have have, uh, more funds to make that information grow on their side. They're bound to have better legal counsel than you are if you're a starting musician. So there's an information asymmetry on the one hand that gets consolidated by, by reality cost considerations and such. And on the other hand, there's a very big gap between supply and demands because you only have a a limited number of corporate partners that musicians feel are a good fit for their wants and needs. And on the other hand, you have a continuous supply of wannabe superstars. So basically, if you're in the position of a corporate partner, you have there's freedom of contract. Obviously, we we have that overarching principle, but you have the liberty to try and impose certain contractual conditions on a musician in the safe knowledge that if they don't accept, there'll always be another hopeful that wants to take their place. Yeah, so there's an oversupply, you're saying, right? An oversupply of musicians. I guess it's somewhat similar to what people have claimed about uh, Hollywood or, right? There's a lot of young people that want to become actors or actresses, and therefore they'll be reluctant to reluctant to enforce their rights because they know that they can be replaced by anybody else. Yeah, it's a, it's a consideration that rings true across all um, cultural and creative industries in a way. But also maybe something I want to add to that is that there is an information asymmetry on the one hand, but in all cultural and creative industries, in a certain way, there's also a lack of information on both sides because culture is an experience good and it's very difficult to predict what will be successful, be it in the music industry or be it in the audiovisual sector. And so it's always very difficult to predict what's going to happen. So that information asymmetry needs to be combined with the idea of a a lack of information that's present on both sides. And that is what's being quoted by the corporate side of, of the equation. Like, okay, we have to invest money. This is our money. This is our risk. And the risk is huge because only 10% of acts uh, make a profit and 90% are are a net loss for us. So that's basically what they then cite as a reason for them to be able to hold on to a a larger uh, piece of the pie, as it were. But if you have these artists with a low bargaining power, why why do you not see more DIY, sort of do-it-yourself activity, right? I mean, I can imagine for young actors or actresses, it's not that you can can make your own movie. Or, I mean, I, I guess it would be complicated to just simply make your own movie. While for musicians, I would think, well, why not record your own album, 
to set up your own distribution? Like, what? Where do we still need, or where do musicians really still need support from from a major label? I think it's it is very good to see that the independent music sector is getting more and more traction and getting more popular as well. If you look at the market shares in the streaming sector for the three major labels combined, Sony, Universal, and Warner have about 68, 67%, 68% market share at the moment. So the other 30, 32%, that's the independence. You have the larger independence, you have small enterprises, you have the real DIY musicians that do everything themselves. They record everything themselves, find a a digital distributor that only takes a commission of 15 or 30%. So it's possible. It's definitely possible for artists to, to go at it alone or with a smaller corporate partner. But then the question is, okay, if I, if I do it myself, I have a higher proportion of revenues, but my chances of getting on the algorithm, the good side of the algorithm, that is, are relatively slow. Yeah, uh, so we, 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 get, we get back to this issue of algorithms and playlists. Yeah. So. I think that's a really, really big thing we have to talk uh, we have to talk about we have to think about those playlists and transparency i find that super interesting because record companies used to take a big chunk of the money because there were there was a physical infrastructure there was a distribution network i mean there was all these sort of physical risks let's say and 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 now it seems that they're still taking a lot of the money but mainly as compensation for their bargaining power or as compensation for their size in a sense that they can can get you on the algorithm they can get you into the playlist because apart from that, I guess that if you think about sort of the physical expenses or expenses related to physical sort of infrastructure are quite limited for record companies, right? Or, or am I underestimating then the fact that there's still a lot, of, I mean, that recording is still expensive and that marketing is still expensive and things like that? Yeah, the thing is that it's been argued that now marketing and promotion is taking the biggest chunk of, of costs, that the risk of investment is huge and ever-growing. And that's still record companies and music publishers take a significant risk and do all of these costs. One thing that struck me when a, a theme that, that emerges from your thesis is that it's very complex, right? The whole, the whole system, the whole industry is very complex. There's all these streams, streams of, of money, I mean, not only streams of music, but also streams of money. There's all these, these rights holders, there's all these organizations and parties, very different contracts, not a lot of transparency. So this seems like a setting where you would think that the blockchain will solve everything, right? So you could think that the blockchain will make sure that all, all right holders are paid automatically, right? So everything is a blockchain, everything is paid automatically. So so do you think that this is a, this this will indeed happen? That there will be sort of an evolution towards having a lot of these things and automated systems on the blockchain where every time I stream toxic by Britney Spears, that Britney Spears is automatically getting her. I don't want to be naive. To be honest, like five five years ago, we all thought that that blockchain technology was going to change everything. There was loads of different startups that promised a completely disintermediated online utopia where artists would get 100%, complete disintermediation, artist to fan. And I was really swept up in the moment. I thought like, yes, yes, this is going to be the solution. This is going to change the world. And um, together with, with one of my supervisors, my co-supervisor, uh, Professor Marie-Christine we did a lot of research on that particular issue, like can blockchain technology, can smart contracts, can NFTs now and uh, the new craze, can they change the world? 
And basically what we found was all of the, not all of them, but like 80% of the startups that would seem so promising at the outset, by the time our peer review process of the papers was finished, they were bankrupt. So basically, I would have hoped that it would have changed the world, but there are several theoretical and practical issues with the implementation of blockchain technology that to me prevented from ever changing the world to the extent that it promised to do so. The main of which is the garbage in, garbage out problem that if you put information on a blockchain that's wrong, it's going to stay wrong, right? So the potential for fraud in a context where data, where metadata, where data is so vital in getting the money to the right people and getting the right people credit for their work, it's so important If you can't guarantee that the information that's put in is correct, then what does it solve? Yeah, so in this setting or in this context, I guess it's relevant. I think you're right at some point that Spotify, probably for a lot of the tracks on its service, doesn't even know which songs are in the files or which songs are in the track or who wrote the songs that are in the tracks, right? So they don't really know, they wouldn't even know who to compensate or who to pay. Is that correct? That they... That probably there's a lot of poor data there and they, yes, they yes. know I guess they know which files are being streamed, but they don't always know who the right holders are for each file. Yeah, so that goes back to the difference between music publishing and recorded music, where Spotify mainly converses with record companies who hold rights in the re- recording, but often not in the composition itself. So basically the problem is that the data on the composition are not entirely correct all the time. And the incentive for the record companies to do something about that is relatively small because that money that is connected with the composition doesn't go to them. So why would they care to a certain extent? So that's that's still a big problem. The the metadata on, on music publishing that makes sure that a lot of money eventually doesn't end up with the right person or persons. But there's there's some initiatives that try to remedy that. Most importantly, I, I'd like to refer you to the Credit Due uh, initiative that was started up, I think, a few weeks ago by, by Abbas uh, Björn Ubiers. I think things are moving in, in the right direction in this regard. There's, a, there's plans for a unified data standard that's interoperable, and things are definitely looking up on that side too. But I don't want to be as naive as I was when I first heard about blockchain. So it's difficult to say, yes, credit to you is going to change the world. I personally would like to wait and see. We definitely need to support initiatives like this that want to do something about the metadata issue and uh, rights fragmentation and stuff like that. But we need to be realistic at the same time. 